0: Johnny, are you over here? No,
1: I'm over there. You're over
0: there. I'm over here. You're over there.
1: <laughs> Good to be back on the FM on the waves. And um, we've got another edition of the Digital Bite Show for the 8th of February. So the year's rattling
0: along. We're already almost into the second week of February, Joe. I- I'm excited about later on with all the King's horsemen and all the King's men trying to put oh, yeah. Craig right back together again.
1: <laughs> well, they certainly marched him up to the top of the hill and marched him down again, didn't
0: they? That's going to be an exciting one.
1: Excellent. But that's that's after the break. We've got um, James Ramsden, as you say, King's Counsel. So for those not familiar with the legal system in the UK, King's Counsel basically means um, he's a big cheese attorney. I suppose that's how you could describe it, James. So he's um, And he's in the court case. Whereby they're arguing that uh, in tulip trading, where the uh, um, they're trying to say to the people that actually wrote the code for Bitcoin, um, someone's Bitcoins have been hacked, stolen. It's your responsibility. You wrote the code, so therefore, can you come up with um, three, nearly four billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, or rewrite the code? So um, yes, yeah, someone,
0: someone's asking, right? Someone.
1: Someone, 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 and someone equally notorious is defending. But um, we will uh, see, see. We'll see what the king's council has to say after the break, James.
0: Okay, okay, I get all excited. So, so what can we talk about this week? The February eighth newsletter went out, and uh, we covered But well, some- load. So,
1: we 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 looked this week, as you know, we looked at um, loyalty programs. It's a massive market, um, going back. First uh, loyalty schemes were in 1896. Greenshield stamps. You're too young. You don't remember Greenshield stamps, but I bet your mum and dad do. When you go to the grocers, you used to get some stamps and put them in a book and then take the book when they're filled up and go and buy yourself a kettle and a
0: toaster and something like that. You know, we did stuff like, well, probably not official, right? Like I, I do remember collecting stickers to get like a free toy. That's it. Cool. So we've got that, but they've, they, they've all gone digital
1: and increasingly. So we've got some examples of what's been happening there. Um, the other thing sounds super dull, I know, but um, as we're seeing more and more banks and asset managers issuing digitized assets. So we've talked about this a lot. This isn't anything to the cryptocurrency. This is tokenizing real estate, equities, bonds, data, commodities, derivatives, you need to have some standards. So we look at the different standards around and what are the sort of pros and cons of, of, of some of those. And then finally, we've got something looking at, um, ESG, your favorite subject. I'm a very good boy. You know, a good boy. You got your electric car. now. I know you've got a couple of gas guzzlers in the garage, but you've got, you've got a, a green, a green car. So we, um, looking at how cryptocurrencies, and digital assets and their sort of digital sort of, um, their ESG credentials. So, uh, they're some of the things that we're covering in this week's Digital Bytes.
0: Yeah, I think I actually learned something new in that one. So we'll we'll talk about that one. But okay. but start me off, I'm, I am not obviously unfamiliar with royalty programs and loyalty loyalty systems because we have our own. Well, so tell me about how everybody else is doing it better than me. It's
1: it's you know it's a bit of a nightmare, James. Isn't it? You know, there's they reckon seventy percent of credit card users have points which then they haven't used um and know oh, you know what's
0: funny wait a minute my i looked Yo. at my wife's credit card bill yesterday yep and she, and she was like i'm going to make the minimum payment cuz i don't know if we have the extra and i, I said 7000 reward points what are these and she said to <laughs> me i don't know but
1: but that's well we could only find figures these is a little old so we nearly didn't use it but back in 2017 the unused reward schemes all around the world could be worth a hundred billion dollars.
0: I think my so wife got to have it. Seven
1: thousand. Well, gonna say, sounds like your wife's got a big chunk. You could be going on a, a luxury cruise for two um, in the bathtub with seven thousand points. Right.
0: So, yeah, I, I imagine that that's the world, right? We don't. Is there an ability? Are we overselling them? Is that what? The, is that where we're gonna lead to a hundred billion dollars? you sided. You decided well, a
1: hotel. Well, they're not easy. They're not easy to, you know, you might've got, you know, reward points and going to the gas station, but actually you can't use them when you want to, you know, go with an airline or you might've got them from going and get some groceries, but you can't use them. Um, if you want to top up the car with fuel. So th- there's, you know, basically the other thing is that some people are getting hacked. So you do need to keep an eye on what loyalty points you've got, because people aren't just hacking into your bank accounts. They're happy, hacking into loyalty schemes. These loyalty schemes can be really really Valuable, you know. I remember a good friend of mine when he got married because he did a lot of company travel. He paid for his wife and himself, and they went on Concord from London to New York, all based on air miles. It was a few million air miles, but crikey, that's a hell of a amount ma- of money saved by a bit of a cheapskate. Um, he's
0: doing that, but that's that's certainly what he did. Yeah, I, I would see the motivation. I mean, don't touch my points, and I'm saving up for a Lambo. <laughs> Absolutely, but we've done but there that. Is a, I was, we, I was guilty of that even when I was growing up. Like I said, the Marlboro miles, I always use that, you know, as an example, yeah. they, everybody was like, I want the umbrella. I want the, tw-. I was like, no, I'm going for the tent. I'm going all out It's like 38,000 Marlboro miles. I want the big tent to go camping in. Well, but, but now
1: what's happened, James, it's instead of, you know, getting loyalty points by, you know, stamping a bit of paper or licking some stamps um, you've, you, it's now gone digital. So we've seen fashion brands like Tiffany, we, using nfts to reward customers um so that the owners of um nft ifs um, as in tiffany's um they could have exclusive rights to crypto punks nft themed jewelry um gap launched some nfts to give um you know you access to their hoodies um apple um you know actually giving you the ability to have much more control over your data and actually there's much less cookies. So there's much less loyalties potentially being handed out there. So that's a a good stroke, bad things. But at least you know that um, what you're going to have to do is have more control over your data. But it means that brands are having to find a different way to create other loyalty schemes to collect information about potential customers. Um, So we've seen Visa, MasterCard, they've got digital assets. American Express yet to get involved, but we understand that potentially um, there's some interesting things coming out. Um, from American Express vis vis some sort of do- digital loyalty scheme. Because back in 2017, again, Amex actually um, were talking about the benefits of blockchain technology and actually filed a patent in 2018, which described the pr- process of using blockchain technology to receive requests for payment, which we then approved or rejected. And that process would include some sort of risk analysis. So seemingly Amex were looking to automate their systems further. And there'd been a huge um issuer of loyalty schemes. You know, if you have the black card or the platinum card or the gold card, you can rack up all sorts of bonus points for staying in hotels and um, you know, things like that. And they did launch for a while with a company called Boxed. Um they did actually have um a loyalty scheme which they were using blockchain to give the merchants much more ability for the types and make it more bespoke, the type of um things that they could offer to They're different members. So very much the credit and debit cards are engaged in this loyalty type scheme.
0: You must have some loyalty points with um, Amex and the like there, James. Well, I'm definitely going to find out what my wife has with the Visa one. I remember the (laughs) Amex, the black card. I remember seeing people like at the private bar, like when you're at the airport. Oh, they get to go drink in that bar, that pub. The glass that's not fair. Amex, I thought, invented the, re- the royalty scheme. Well, they, they
1: were very certainly instrumental behind it. But, but again, going back to you know, your wife and not using her 7,000 points, um, there was a company that did an online study of, of tens of thousands of different online brands. And they reckon the redemption rate for e-commerce was less than 14%, which, okay, you're given all these points, but if you don't use them, then it's, what's the point? in in the sense that you're not encouraging the customers to engage. So what we're beginning to see is um, loyalty schemes whereby um, more customers are able to swap their loyalty points from when they're spending in one merchant so that they can use in another place or they can combine the loyalty points to make it worth something which is more attractive. And going sort of very much mainstream and bringing it back to what this publication is all around, sort of, um, you know, blockchain, Well, Starbucks have got their Web3 odyssey. So we were talking the other day to Badger on East Loves West, um, the the radio show we were doing, James, and we were talking about Starbucks have got 30 million members on their loyalty program, and they account for 56% of all the business that Starbucks does. So it's that old adage of, you know, don't keep looking for new clients, but be a farmer. Look after your existing clients. And now Starbucks, end of last year, launched the Odyssey Rewards Program, which is using loyalty programs, NFTs, and Web3. And the soon-to-be sort of retiring Howard Schultz, the CEO of um, Starbucks, was waxing lyrical that he thought it was a really big breakthrough um, that Starbucks, Web3, and their NFTs were going to sort of create so an authentic digital third Place experience and drive new revenue streams for Starbucks, so that it becomes you know an additional benefit to the brand. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how many listeners are actually already part of the um, Odyssey um, that Starbucks have actually created, James.
0: Which, in terms of adoption, I'd, I'd have to—I don't know if I am. I have the Starbucks app, and I, I know I collect stars. So I wonder if that's going on, and, and you know, in disguise, and we don't know it.
1: You got loyalty points in, in, in the
0: cloud, in the cloud somewhere. <laughs> and maybe I'm equally guilty of not, of not using them. <laughs> yeah. So the other article we were looking at James was
1: standards. And in terms of if we're going to start seeing all these different assets and, you know, points and things like that. And if they, if you, if they use different sort of processes and standards, it's very difficult for these um, digital assets to be sort of combined Um And we were trying to work out, well, okay, so when did we have standards? And there was, um, going back to your Italian roots here, James, there's a bank called Monte de Passi, um, which is the world's oldest bank. And in the 15th century, um, you know, it then took, what, 500 years before we then had global banking standards. So the banking world moves, you know, it does move, but it moves sometimes very, very slowly. Um, But it wasn't really until we had, um, you know, the Securities Act in 1933, following the stock market crash in 1929, that we began to see more and more standards being brought in. And so uh, one more level, you laugh when people say, oh, we need standards for crypto and digital assets because they've been around 10 or 12 years. I think, well, hang on. The bankers took 500 years to bring in standards. But if we had standards, if we had better processes, arguably, we wouldn't have seen the collapse of FTX, even though they've managed to recover 5 billion, billion. They're still... At least a couple of billion short that people are going to lose money as a result of some of the shenanigans that went on there.
0: They're just a little bit short. Well, that's funny, mm-hmm. right? We had to took the market crash of twenty nine, which everybody talks about to this day. I wonder if the FTX collapse would be that equivalent, right? I'll I don't think, tell our kids about what so. happened. Yeah,
1: I don't. I don't think they'll talk about it. But um, but in terms of looking at standard, we started looking at okay, so. How many developers are there out there in the ecosystem? And um, some great work from BlockWorks. And they reckon that there's about 25,000 developers. But out of all the different blockchains, and there literally are hundreds of blockchains, Ethereum has over 5,000 developers. And that's why um, we see lots of apps and lots of tokens being issued um, on the Ethereum blockchain. And so we just had a quick wander through some of the different Ethereum standards, the ERC, um, obviously standing for Ethereum Request for Comment. And so, of course, the one that most people are familiar with, ERC-20, which was where we had um, ICOs, i.e., you know, initial coin offerings. They all used ERC-compliant tokens so that everyone knew the coding that was required in order to be able to create a cryptocurrency back in, what, 2017, 2018. But arguably, right the way through to the modern Example, we've got a ERC um, token called 3643. Um, and this is a smart contract that enables the issuance and management and transfer of, of digital assets, of tokens, um, with, with built-in compliance rules um, so that you can appoint authorized agents over the whole life from start to end of, of the actual token. And that token, um, created by a company called Tokeny, We've had tokeny. Do you remember? We had Daniel. He was the man. He was the Luxembourgan who came on, or Luxembourgie, right. Luxembourger, Luxembourger, not cheeseburger, Luxembourger. Um, so but they wrote yeah, so tokeny. Well, they yeah they developed. it. It's now been authorized or now being approved accredited by the whole um, er by the Ethereum community, and they've they've actually issued twenty eight billion dollars worth of assets using ERC three six four three and that's certainly to be a, a token which is um being used by sort of many many different people um across the industry and it means that the assets can carry on a very compliant in for, um format which people can then agree on um and that the enforces the ability to track ownership and access the data into real time which is obviously really important as we see more assets going down this road
0: i was reading i was just reading on it and uh Yeah, you know, I didn't know about this one, and yet I know the fine folks over there. So, and this will automatically be compatible with um, other, you know, Tron, Binance, Smart Chain.
1: Yeah, they're already working with Avalanche and with Polygon. And, um, you know, you can, as you you know, James, you can use these things called bridges, which can then effectively link one blockchain to another. So just because you start out on Ethereum doesn't mean you always have to stay there forever and a day. I like it. Yeah, and, the, yep. and they got rapping, too. But a little bit closer to
0: you, James. Um, how far are you from Pennsylvania? Well, I used to live up near Pennsylvania. Now, now I'm a good trip away. But it's north of you, isn't it? It's north of me about, say, 800 miles. Well, but okay. back in New so York. Um... Back, so when I left New York to come to Georgia, a lot of my friends were leaving New York to go to Pennsylvania because in the, the area known as the Poconos, they would still be able to commute in the manhattan you know a, a 2 hour train ride 2 hours Ugh. of commuting each way Ugh. is about oh, the yeah. limit
1: wow well in pennsylvania they've got a nuclear power station um and it's the first nuclear power bitcoin mine um a company called terra wolf no o w u l f and they're using um presumably the power station chucks out a fair bit of power twenty four hours a day. Not all that power is required by homes and factories, so some of it then gets siphoned off to help mine Bitcoin. Um, and this is quite interesting because Bitcoin generated last year eighty six million tons of carbon emissions. So that's oh, one doesn't sound good, old not good at all. And evidently, that needs four hundred and thirty million trees just to suck up all that carbon. Um, but that kind of ignores people like Wolf and other Bitcoin miners that are using geothermal, solar hydro wind farms. And they reckon that the um, Bitcoin mining actually accounts for 59% of its energy comes from renewable. So you can at least take that 86 million and cut it in half. But even so, it's still a lot of, a lot of carbon emissions as a result of Bitcoin mining Um and, and people are questioning. And that's why we've seen a lot of pressure for Ethereum. Obviously, Ethereum has, has changed the way it um, produces and the way it operates from proof of proof of work to a proof of stake. And they claim that that's a reduction. The reduction in carbon emissions on the by going to um, proof of uh, proof of stake is 99.5%. So that's a hell of a
0: reduction in carbon emissions. Right. and And, and speed came with that as well. Yeah, it became lighter, so it became faster. That transactions are important, you know. Bitcoin yep. can be real slow. It's one thing to burn a bunch of carbon, but also doing it so slowly isn't popular.
1: But then, this whole ESG thing, James, I know some people say, Oh, so do people really care? Well, according to PwC, um, they reckon the ESG related funds. Um, by 2026 be over 33 trillion and and already we're seeing governments issuing green bonds uh, that market is worth two trillion as of uh, third quarter of last year so we're seeing more and more attention being paid to all esg and where blockchain again can help is that you can actually track and trace the provenance if you like of what are the ESG credentials, whether it be a cryptocurrency or whether it be a debt issue or whether it be the way in which Ford um, sourced their cobalt for the electric car batteries. So they want to be able to prove that they're not using child labor or terrible conditions. So um, we're seeing the use of blockchain technology being used to improve the provenance and transparency to improve and help establish people's ESG credentials. It's going to be a bigger and bigger thing, regardless of the fact that some of the cryptos would appear to be using a lot of energy to, um, you know, to be maintained and do their mining.
0: Yeah, you know, there's a couple of coins out there like Floki and Doge, and they're building churches and schools in Africa. Uh, believe it or not, right? And you'd call them like meme coins, but they they claim they're doing things like that. Um, how does that affect their ESG? Is it, I think of ESG often as a score. I hate to say it. But almost like a social credit score. Well, it is a sort, you know. If,
1: certainly, a lot of asset managers and a lot of banks and lenders. You know, if you're, you know, if you if you get a, a bad score, if you if you can't prove that you're environmentally you know, ESG is environmental, social, corporate governance. So if you, you know, if you're ruining the environment, you know, look, it's the eighth of February today. As you know, I'm off to Australia at the weekend, and I was intrigued to hear that um just. Uh, up in northern on the northeast Australia, near the barrier reef, they've just rejected an application for a um a new open cast coal mine. mine. So 'Cause they said the amount of runoff and foul water would potentially harm the barrier reef or all the dust and everything coming off the um open coal mine, it would potentially damage the environment. So, you know, that's a, a multi-million pound business, which they said no. And the reason for no is because of the impact on the environment. So it is becoming a much, much more important. And we've got to do it. We've we've seen the effect of global warming. We've seen, you know, the fires and the floods, um, you know, that are happening all over the world. You know, you've seen it in America as much as anywhere. We, you know, are we going to get another heat wave again this summer like we did last year, James? You guys got hit. You got hit with record, got really record-breaking record heat, right? Yeah, record-breaking. Um but then, on the good side, you've got um, some cryptocurrencies use hardly any energy. So Stellar, IOTA, Nano, even oh Ripple, you know they, they're using you know point naught naught seven nine kilowatts, which is really not a lot at all. Um, so you can't lump all cryptos in the same category and say all are bad. Some are some are definitely worse than others
0: um, in terms of their carbon footprint. Right, and one day it'll be. I guess with the ESG score it'll it'll be the value or it'll affect the value of the crypto. But Yeah, because it, people won't be able to invest in them, I suppose. But if you get out of crypto and you go back into digital assets, uh there's a Tesla versus Exxon ESG war going on. That could be interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because actually Tesla uh, all it does is actually manufacture, whereas at least with um, Exxon they are now very heavily involved in renewable energy. And you know, I know BP put out some numbers. They they did some fantastic profit numbers yesterday for the last quarter. But you know, they're saying that they're still on track for 2030 to you know have had a reduction over 20 25 percent of their carbon footprint. And they're they're beginning to they're investing billions into renewable energy. Um, some of the petrol companies, although they're in theory the biggest contributors to you know with juicing um, oil and and gas. But they're also some of the biggest investors into solar and wind because they realize that's the future going forward. Very good. I
0: haven't grabbed your attention on this one, James, have I? Well, I I don't want to go to tinfoil hat way. I see the future for it. I just... I see... When I see something that has the ability to be manipulated in my mind, even though with blockchain, you can't do that, right? And everything's immutable. I still see, like... Elon, I, I, I'm not a Musk fan, but I was empathetic to him when he, when Sunoco was given a higher ESG credit rating than Tesla. Like he, I could, I, as a layman, felt his pain. I was like, how's that possible? So who's assigning the scores, right? Yeah. Who, who's? What are they based on? I don't think there's clarity on what they're based on, at least for normal people to understand. Don't disagree. Don't disagree. Well, all good then.
1: All right, James, I feel
0: well, better. Well, we, we, we better go, James, because we've got
1: the uh, King's Council. He's revving up to um, tell us all about what's happened in court last week. And that'll be after the break. But if anyone wants to get a copy of Digital Bytes, all they've got to go to is uh, teamblockchain.net, sign up and we'll send you a copy or just go to cyber.fm. And we'll also can um, get all you just need is your email address and we'll send it out to you. And every week we're looking at who, how, where and why. Blockchain technology and digital assets will be used in different jurisdictions here on the Digital Byte Show on uh,
0: Cyber.fm. Sometimes there are awkward reasons to use them, and sometimes they're fun. (laughs) Team Blockchain.net. Right in front of you, the minute it loads up, we don't care how you listen to this show. I'd love for you to listen on Cyber.fm, but let's be realistic. Anchor, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, iHeart, CastBox, Stitcher tune in Pandora and you could always say Alexa open up Digital Bytes podcast we put that right there in the very front and right next to it if you have no idea what we're talking about every week stick your email address in there and actually get the newsletter
2: you are listening to the all new cyber.fm
0: Johnny what are you doing to me I got poetry going through my head about how all the king's council and all the king's men couldn't put Craig Wright back together again Oh my goodness, you're you're talking Humpty Dumpty and I bet you thought when you saw the Heading of this
1: article, Tulip Trading I bet you thought I was going to put you in a time machine Take you back to the tulip Bulb craze When they were selling black tulips for millions In today's money We've got to go back, back to the future We've got to go back, you always have to go back to go forward But first of all um, James Ramsden, King's Council um, Great to have you on the show And you've written a Quite an intriguing title, Tulip Trading, um, and its potential atropathy effect on crypto networks. Now, I live in England, but I wouldn't mind a translation, please, my learned friend. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to join you guys again.
2: Uh, yeah, we always like to talk in riddles, just like you two have done. Um, so, so let me let me translate. <laughs> uh, we, um, we're, we're more expensive when we talk in riddles. Um, <laughs> it, you said it. <laughs> it, it's it's been a, it's been a breathless week i can tell you what a, what a week um as a as a lawyer it's been fantastic i suspect as a participant it hasn't but yeah um a week ago um just under a week ago the court of appeal here in london um gave a decision in a claim by tulip tulip which is the corporate alter ego of craig Wright the um person who claims to be satoshi and
1: it is a 4.5 hang on hang on for, for listeners, Satoshi, Satoshi Nakamoto is the man, the person, the entity that is supposedly to invented Bitcoin.
0: Right, Indeed. not Craig Wright. Not Craig Wright. Sorry, I just, this is. My, I listen. I have a reputation to hold. I have to make that statement.
1: <laughs> okay, so so some some guy called Craig Wright. He's brought a case to court in the appeal court, and you. Um, uh, as King's Council, um, that, you know, you work with the Group, Group, that, that's the business you'd set up. You, you actually were representing the defendants, I, the people that he was having a go at. That's
2: right. So my clients are all uh, open source code writers. Most of their open source code was posted on GitHub. And the coding question was used to run the Bitcoin network. And uh, Craig Wright, through Tulip, his company, claimed that they were were what he called core developers. So he said, look, this isn't really a decentralized system. There are 12 to 15 guys who from time to time really run this system because they're the only people with the hashing power and the expertise to prevail over everybody else in terms of what code is actually adopted and used. And um, he says two, three years ago, he was subject to a malicious hack of his system. He lost 45 billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. And he says it's within my client's power to apply a patch to the system and retrieve it for him and that they owe him a duty to do that, a fiduciary duty in English law or a duty of care in English law. And last Friday, the Court of Appeal in London said that case should go to a trial because in legal language, it, it represents a serious issue to be tried. So it's not hopeless. So a trial judge has got to look at everything and decide whether it's a, a runner or not. Well, the implications of that are just huge um, okay, Jane, well beyond crypto. Jane,
1: hang on, James, before we get into this, look, can I just go back a step? So we've got we got this chap um, called Craig Wright. Um, he's lost four and a half billion worth of Bitcoin. And he's saying the reason that it's gone is because the, the code that these um, developers had written was, was not up to scratch. And. So he's asking them to put a, a patch or is he asking them to fork Bitcoin? What was, what, what, which, which of the two is he looking to try and do? Well, that, that's the
2: interesting question. Uh, and there are two parts to the answer, both of which are very important. Um, he's not actually alleging that the original code was defective. So oh. he's he saying it was hacked and he's saying that because they uh, put that code on the system, allowed it to be publicly accessible and it has been hacked, they owe a duty essentially to reverse that hack. And the second part of the answer, equally intriguing, is that he says they do that, they must do that, either by applying a patch or a fork, creating a fork. Um, technically, whether that's possible is going to be a matter for the trial. But he says that either option is available. And essentially, he's saying to the English court, he's holding his hands up and saying, unless I can succeed in this claim, I have no remedy. And that is anathema to the law. You, you know, If you've lost, assuming the facts are true, assuming he's lost four and a half billion US dollars um, at the hands of a malicious actor, some part of the law has to come to his rescue. That's his case. Uh, and that's okay. it. But, but why is he trying it in the UK? Well, well that's an interesting one. Um, the hack occurred in the UK, he says. Um, so his computers at home down in leafy Surrey were where the hack occurred. So as a matter of jurisdiction law, you would ordinarily sue in the jurisdiction where the harm was caused. And he says that's this country. But there's a lot of forum shopping that goes on. That is, you know, people can choose how they bring their claim and therefore where they can bring it. And there's no question that he wanted to bring his claim in this jurisdiction. Tulip is a Seychelles registered company. So it's got no connection with the UK at all. So you know the bit the, the Bitcoin. Well, where is the Bitcoin? Not necessarily in the UK, although the current law is uh, Bitcoin is domiciled where its um, owner resi- resides. So um, that's why we're here in the UK. But the real reason I think is that this is the jurisdiction which is most prepared to grapple with these issues. Most other jurisdictions, including the you know the big boys of the common law world like the US, have you know turned and run uh, when the opportunity has arisen. But the UK hasn't. And that's all part of, you know, the UK keeping its reputation as, you know, the common law jurisdiction of choice, the place where the world's common law is made.
0: All right. I, I want to slow is... this down for a second. I want to be Go serious. I, I want to be serious for a moment, but I want to dumb it down. And I'm dumb at the moment, right? I'm not a lawyer and I'm into blockchain. I, I know all about that. But what I'm what I just heard so far, I want to wrap my head around this for, for regular people. Right In America we have a jury and that jury is going to have normal people on it and they're going to have to wrap their head around something like this. So in theory and I'm not even going to use his name I'm just, so Joey went out on the internet one day with happened to have his Bitcoin wallet on the same computer and he went to a, a website that probably maybe maybe we shouldn't have gone to that website and, and in, in infectious malware got injected that took advantage of perhaps a vulnerability in that Bitcoin wallet that would would have probably been exposed and fixed at one point in time, anyway, right? Because of good faith, good faith, you're always going to be fixing bugs. That's always a constant flow. So, in in my limited knowledge, my limited attitude in technology, is that that's Joey's fault, right? It's if if you're you have to have your virus software, your 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 malware software, you, uh, you know, Oh, the, I happen to have this extremely important piece of software installed. So uh, I should be mindful of what I do on the internet. How, and I guess you were explaining that. How is it anybody's fault other than Joey?
2: Well, James that's, that's a good question. And, you know, stripping things down. I'm, I, I don't think that was dumbed down at all. It, it, that was stripped down to the bare essentials of what this case is about. And, It articulates it in non-legal ways better than I was. And it is a good question. Um, Why is that anybody's fault other than the person who lost their Bitcoin? Um, In this case, Tulip used the analogy of somebody who buys a safe and loses the keys to the safe. And they say in those circumstances, they shouldn't be without a remedy. The locksmith has to come and sort that out for them. The only point is in this case, the locksmith has to do it for free. And they're obliged to do it, whether they want to do it or not. I mean, it is extraordinary. Um,
0: if I if I drive over a nail in my driveway, I get mad at myself that I left a nail in my driveway and now I don't have a tire. All right. I'm not going to interrupt again. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, yeah but, but James, you know, if, if I drive, let's keep the car analogy for a second. And um, I, I want to come on to software developers as a whole in a moment. But in a very simplistic sense, I'm driving down the road in my Ford um, you know, pickup truck and I I have an accident and I, um, you know, I run over someone. You don't go and sue Ford. You, you know the, the the you know the the spouse will come after me and say, "I'm sorry, Mr. Fry, but you actually the one behind the wheel." Uh, am I missing something? Because software or, or a gun? You got a gun. You don't go and sue. You know, um, Colt or Westinghouse and say, "Well, you you manufactured the gun. It's the guy that pulled the trigger." So so what? And the other thing is is that this is all this you were representing. The defendants at an appeal court. This has already gone to court. So why is the judge able to turn around at an appeal court and say, "Sorry, you've got to go back to court"? That, that you know, if you're not careful, you're going to be in and at court for the, forever and a day because it'll go to appeal and then they say, "No, back to back to court." No appeal. Oh, no, back to court.
0: Why? Why can this happen in 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 this? What what what's led this to this? And real quick, that's an interesting point. If it's in a court of appeal does that mean that the decision currently is that PayPal would be responsible for me losing a dollar? Or does that responsibility become on hold because it's in a court of appeal?
2: No, let, let, me, let me just deal with that because th- th- this is a slightly legal technical point, but I'll make it as simple as possible. Because all of the developers don't live in the UK and the claim is brought here, Tulip needed the permission of the court in England to serve them out of the jurisdiction. And to do that, Tulip had to show that it has what we call a serious issue to be tried. In other words, you know, its claim had sufficient merit to bother serving these people out of the jurisdiction. Last year, we persuaded the judge at first instance to conclude that the claim did not have that merit, that level of merit. So there was no serious issue to be tried. And it's just that low threshold test that the Court of Appeal had reversed. They said, no, it does. It's got sufficient merit. It, it should go to a trial. So they have said you can serve the defendants outside the jurisdiction. They are then compelled to engage in these proceedings, even though they live in the US or Switzerland, and there will be a full trial of that claim. So that's the point. So I got it. I
0: had it backwards.
2: You know, yeah. it's it's a very it's a very nuanced and it's a very qualified decision, albeit a very important one. But going back to the, the first part of your question, yeah, I mean, this is not a product liability case. I mean, no one is saying that the hack was caused by a defect in the the, the code for which the code writers were responsible. Yeah, you know, they put defective code on a, a public forum. They're not saying that. No one is saying how the hack occurred. They're just saying it occurred. I'm left without a remedy because I can't find the hackers and I can't otherwise re- recover my Bitcoin. You guys, the developers, can do that and you should do that. That's it. it so it is entirely novel. And the Court of Appeal in London recognised that and they allowed the appeal because they said, look, there's no precedent here. This is not what the law says at present. But this is new technology. And it's new technology, which enters the market in an unusual way, namely open source code placed on an an open accessible forum. And the law needs to look at that to ask itself whether it needs to adapt to take account of this. And judges have always talked about the English law developing, they like to say incrementally, and cautiously to adapt to different modern circumstances. And this is precisely what they say is happening here. Now, the court could still conclude that these duties are not owed. It could, it might conclude they are owed, but that's now got to await this trial. But yeah, I was chatting to Johnny earlier this week. What is most fascinating about their reasoning is that what they really said was, look, if, if DeFi, decentralized finance, is a myth in the way that Tulip alleges, namely the Bitcoin network, is actually controlled by 12 to 15 code writers, mm-hmm. then these duties probably would exist. But if it is genuinely decentralized, if DeFi is not a myth, then it's difficult to see how these duties could exist. And, and that means that DeFi is on trial. You know, what see, is
0: it? Do people it- realize that that now, now for intents and purposes, I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, the creator of Bitcoin is stating that decentralization is not something that should exist in finance. Is thats that... Is that- I mean, if, oh, yeah, oh, a is. newspaper could write that article, right? A,
2: a, a newspaper a newspaper could write that article, James, because it is an a, a essential part of Tulip's case that decentralization is a myth.
0: And, <laughs> and whether that was... <laughs> I'm sorry, my mind, I don't know what to say.
2: Well, no, I, I, I would agree with that. Uh, whether that was the intention at the time of the White Paper or whether um, the system has evolved in a way that is not decentralized in the way that was intended, who knows? But what Tulip is saying is that now, as of now, whatever the intention may have been uh, in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, it is not decentralized. DeFi is a myth. That's what they. That's what he said. And the Court of Appeal reflected that in the final paragraph of their judgment. Um, they use the word myth. They've adopted that term from Tulip's submissions. So it is absolutely fascinating. DeFi is on trial. You know, DeFi is going to be, you know, examined very, very closely at the trial, and that has huge implications.
0: So, so let, all right. <laughs> so now I'm a software developer, okay, and nothing to even do at DeFi. We're not not even do at cryptocurrency or bl- I'm the few- I'm the next Calvin Air, and I'm going to create a new gambling system for online poker, and people love it. Right, the degenerates come and they bet and they go all in on a full house, and I'm everybody's happy. One guy happens to go to a bad website that maybe stole his credentials for my online gambling system that had nothing to do with the other, but because his computer got hacked and they stole his password to my online gambling system, would I be responsible in this essence? As It's software. It's all software at the end of the day. Am I responsible because that guy got hacked somewhere else and they logged into my gambling system?
2: If you apply Tulip's reasoning in their claim to those facts, the answer would be yes, if what was stolen from the gambler was still retrievable. If it's if it's disappeared and it's gone, then probably not. But in Tulip's case, they can see where the Bitcoin is. They just can't get it. So we know it's there.
0: That's a technical limitation. You cannot roll back a blockchain, especially with Bitcoin anyway. Exactly. I mean, that's
2: why the remedy, either a pact, <laughs>
0: It's the reason Craig Wright invented it.
2: In well, <laughs> exactly. Um, there are a, there are a few, uh, as we always would say, heretical steps that you'd need to take, uh, according to the white paper, yeah. in order to get to the remedy that Tulip wants. Absolutely.
1: But James, what this what this means is that, as far as the UK is concerned, potentially the 41 billion sterling of turnover for software developers, to some extent, is on the line. Because if the judge turns around and says that the software developers potentially are are liable because they could do something about it, then it makes you know writing software certainly open source software um, or even software for some of the big you know conglomerates that you know have dominated the S and P five hundred over the last couple of years it, it it puts a big question mark as to whether you really would want to base yourself out of the, the UK. But if it goes the other way, it you've suddenly got the whole weight of case law and the legislative system here in the UK to say, don't worry, software developer, um, you know, you're safe here and you're probably better off setting up your business here because if you set it up in another jurisdiction, you know, such as James is there in the USA, you're not, you haven't got the case law protection. So it seems to me, as you said in your article, you know, oh, Russia and his merry men need to really, you know, get involved. This is something which the government needs to say and give some clear guidance because, This could impact the economy as a whole. Yeah,
2: hugely. I mean, uh, as I reflect in the article, you know, why would you, during this period of legal uncertainty, write code and put it on a publicly accessible forum? I mean, I wouldn't. I mean, the risk you run is indeterminate liability to step in and police whatever system someone has applied your code to um, without knowing what they applied it to beforehand. I mean, they haven't asked for your consent. They've taken it and they've used it. And then they come back six months later and say, hey, I've suffered $4.5 billion worth of loss, and you now need to step in and help me sort that out. Uh, I mean, who would do that voluntarily? But yeah, conversely, if the decision goes, in my view, the right way, then uh, this becomes a safe, certain jurisdiction for software writers. Um, the problem we've got is that, you know, I'd say this is a pretty sort of queasy time for the sector, because we've got two years, possibly even three, I think more likely two years. Before this issue is resolved, finally, probably back in the Court of Appeal, looking at a substantive decision from a trial judge, uh, including, you know, whether DeFi is a myth, all of that will have been tried, tested, judgment and appeal. And then we'll have our certainty. But That's a long time to be treading water for this sector. And that's why, yeah, we look at the government. And well, you know, you hang your head a little bit, don't you, with this government? Um, you know, we've got a we haven't got the best political class we've had Um in the last century. And I think there are some people who've got the right ideas and the right motivation, but they're either drowned out by you know people who have bigger and nastier fires to fight or they haven't got the funding or they haven't got the political support. And it's incredibly naive because this is hugely important for the UK economy.
1: But, James, presumably, though, um, you, you could bypass all the courts, potentially, and you could actually ask the High Commissioner... Judge Voss, as he has done in the past, look at, you know, our digital assets is Bitcoin an asset, came up with a verdict, came up with his opinion, not a verdict, his opinion, did the same with smart contracts. Surely, this is something really quite critical. Could he not be asked to actually come up with and and get a whole bunch of so-called experts in this area that, you know, and that are very, very uh, um, familiar with the nuances of what we're talking about here. Wouldn't that speed up the process, potentially? I I think I think they've done what they can do. So, you know, the, the
2: the the task force which, which Sir Geoffrey Voss fed into, they they've given their views to the Law Commission. The Law Commission, which is the sort of consultative body which forms the basis of UK legislation, um, is finalising its recommendations to government. Um, the UK the UK have struck out separately from all of that with the sterling-backed digital coin recently. Um, So there's there's a lot of movement here, but it's going to take time. I mean, that Law Commission proposal, it goes through the green paper, white paper stage and then through Parliament. That's probably 12 to 15 months away. And that's without a lot of parliamentary opposition. So, Yeah. yeah, the wheels are turning. There's no question about that. But they're turning very, very slowly. And I agree. I don't think it's for people like Sir Geoffrey Voss. It's the politicians. They're the lawmakers. You know, judges' job is to interpret the law and apply it. The politicians make the law. And it's the politicians who've got to get their finger out and, and you know deal with this. And you know, the way it could be dealt with is, you know, secondary legislation, regulation. You don't need to produce an act of parliament. You could use existing uh, financial services regulation, for example, just as an interim measure, just to sort of calm things down and, and provide some order. But I don't, I don't see any will to do that at the moment. Uh, and I feel that politicians have really turned to the courts to say, you sort this out. And the problem with that is it's you know, it, it's very reliable and very certain, but it's slower than legislation. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, well, James, absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, I know um, we, we'll we'll get you, we, you've, you've actually done an article, um, which we want to get you back on in a couple of weeks' time um, in any case, but um, we'll be in close contact with you and hopefully um, as things develop, you'll let us know and we'll have an update maybe later in this year, as opposed to having to wait a couple of years Um, to sort of see whether um, Joey, Acker, Mr. Wright um, and his tulips um, in Seychelles, you think, come on, you know, but maybe the the judge will turn and say, no, they don't have to come back and maybe he'll throw it out again. Could that happen, James, before we go? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, uh, There are all sorts of things that could happen. It's going to be a very interesting 12 months. We expect a trial in about 12 months. So, yeah, listen. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you to chew the fat again. So I promise that I will keep you posted. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank, thank you.
0: you James. Wait, I was going to say, if, if GitHub firewalls off the UK, you're going to lose so many software developers because GitHub will be don't want to do it. Yeah, it's a fair, fair point. point.
1: Yeah, fair point. Okay. All right, James. James um, Tiley, Another,
0: another, another show. That was good. You, you, you like that lawyer, didn't you? you, you don't, you're not always keen on my lawyers when I bring them in. Well, the lawyers over there are different than the lawyers over here. <laughs> this guy agrees with me.
1: <laughs> well, I think on that, no- on that note, we'll wrap it up. And thank you very much, James Ramson. Thank you, James Tiley. And um, we'll uh, be back on the waves uh, very, very soon. Thank you for listening.